Well, we are going to start a brand new series today called What Would Jesus Undo? Uh, if you had any connection to the church in the late 80s, early 90s, you've heard the phrase, what would Jesus do? Uh, you might not know the story behind it, though. It actually doesn't come from the 1980s. It actually comes from the 1880s. There was a minister in Topeka, Kansas, who uh, he would preach on Sunday evenings. He would preach stories uh, to his congregation where the character in the story would come up face-to-face with some moral dilemma, some life situation, some kind of crossroads, and then he would ask, in light of this, circ- this situation and these circumstances, what would Jesus do? And then he would cliffhanger it so that people would come back next Sunday for church, which is genius, and maybe I should start doing that. Uh, but he wrote uh, all those sermons into a book because they were so popular, and 100 years later, in the 18 or 1980s, a youth minister in Michigan read the book and loved that phrase, what would Jesus do? Love that idea of when you get to those moments where you've got to stop and make a choice that might determine the direction of your life, that she just loved that, that question, what would Jesus do? And she thought it was a powerful thing for people to ask, and so she started encouraging her students to always ask, what would Jesus do? When you're at school and someone's mean to you, what would Jesus do? When you're at school and there's that kid that everybody else is making fun of, what would Jesus do? And to help her students keep that thought, keep that question in mind, she made them all beaded friendship bracelets. And since what would Jesus do was a lot of beads to fit around a wrist, she shortened it to what? WWJD. Yeah, we got, some, we got some of you that had those. Some of you maybe still have them. Um, and, and they caught on like wildfire in the church. And consequently, again, some of you probably had a bracelet that, whoops, excuse me, skip ahead, bracelet look like that. Anybody have a bracelet look like that? Or that? Or that? And I actually owned, I believe, this guy right here, thought that was awesome. Leather straps, that's cool. I thought it was awesome, but I had one of those uh, things. Well, we're not going to be asking about what would Jesus do in those particular situations. About, we're not going to see how does Jesus want us to affect, make those certain decisions. In fact, I want to ask kind of an opposite question. Are there any things in our lives or anything that exists in our church, things that we've allowed and tolerated that don't belong here? Are there things that that we have allowed, behaviors, attitudes, mindsets, that we have allowed into our lives that do not have a place in the lives of believers? And so the question we're going to ask is, what would Jesus undo? If Jesus could look at us, look at our lives, look at how we are walking daily for him, is there anything he would look and say, you're not supposed to be doing that? Would he look at our churches and see behaviors and attitudes and think, that's not supposed to be there. You guys are, are, are not acting and living the way that I wanted you to do. Is there any sort of spiritual amputation that Jesus would perform on our lives. What would Jesus undo? And since I got the slides a little bit out of order, we're going to have to go back here a little bit. And the thing we're going to talk about today, we've got a different topic every week, but I believe that Jesus would undo our spiritual indifference. Jesus would undo our spiritual indifference. I guess we'll hang out on that bracelet that I had. Excuse me. Because I think too often, as Christians... And this is kind of a sermon for Christians, by the way. And if you're here not quite a Christian, at least you can hopefully appreciate the honesty that we're kind of come at with our flaws um, as we tackle this today. Um, but I think for a lot of us who are believers, far too often we approach our faith with an attitude that is just kind of meh. You know, meh. You ever been meh about something? Every time I, Abby and I uh, are trying to go out to eat, what do you want to eat? Hmm? I don't care. It's like the most endless, I mean, we don't fight a lot, but that's probably where we have the most contention, is what are we going to eat? 
And it's like, just pick a place. I know you care. Because you're going to say, what about this place? No. What about here? No. What about here? Well, you care where we don't eat, so surely you care where we do, right? And so when it comes to our faith, why is it so often we approach this thing that's supposed to be the most important foundational element of our lives, and we just kind of don't really seem to care? We don't seem to want to put a lot of emphasis and energy into it. And the thing is, it's not that we are anti-Christianity. It's not that we're thinking about giving up on our faith. In fact, for most Christians, that's not it at all. The problem is that we're just not even thinking about it. It's not, it's normally through the week, Jesus isn't on our mind. What would he have us do? How would he have us live? Those just aren't things that are even on our radar, and we become indifferent to how he wants us to live. And there's, you know, you could talk all day about the reasoning why we tend to be spiritually indifferent. Um, We've talked recently about how busy we are. We've got so many things that we just don't have time for Christ. We don't have time to read the Bible, pray, you know, participate in the life of our church. Uh, We've talked uh, about the reality that, excuse me, um, that we live in kind of a hostile political landscape. That is, there's certain things that like really inflame us and drive us crazy and kind of draw our attention away from things that are are biblical and Christ-like. We've talked recently about how our culture is changing rapidly, and that rapid change in morality that is moving through our culture, it, it seems everywhere, and often we just kind of go with the current, and we don't even realize it. We're just kind of floating along in a way that leads us away from Christ. Um, but whatever excuse you want to come up with for spiritual indifference, the reality is that it's there. The reality is for most of us, we, th- this hour that we're spending here right now is really the only significant evidence that we're Christians, It's really the only thing that would make anybody look at our lives and think that we are different than somebody who doesn't claim Christ at all. And again, you can blame whatever you want to do for that, but the fact is there are a lot of other things that we seem to care way more about. There's a lot of other things that we seem to get way more fired up about and energized about than how we are going to live our lives for our Savior. And so for a lot of us, that word that best describes how we live out our faith would be meh. And... We can come to church regularly, you can crack your Bible open every once in a while, you can serve occasionally, but the question is, when you live your life, when you're not here, when the preacher's not watching, um, what's guiding your life? When you go to work and there's somebody that's just being incredibly rude, do you think, I'm just going to get them back, you know? I know what time they take their bathroom break every day. I'm going to saran wrap that toilet. I'll show them. You know, you're going to, do you think of revenge tactics? Or do you think, okay, how would Jesus call me to live in light of somebody that's not treating me the way I want to be treated? How would Jesus call me to respond to somebody who's being cruel and rude? How does Jesus call me to live? When you go through your life, what is guiding your choices? Because um, it's usually not Jesus that teaches us how to to parent, or that we lean on to, to guide us in how we parent. It's not Jesus that we lean on when it comes to uh, interacting with people who aren't Christians. You know, we think, oh, there's this message of Christ that we have to share with the world, and we kind of, we know that, we hear sermons about it, but when it comes to actually believing it and taking it out there, we're just kind of meh, we don't really care to do that. Every day, there are things that we have, uh, this faith that we are carrying with us, and for the most part, I think a lot of people would not even know that we're any different than anybody else in the world. And uh, I got the title for this series and the inspiration from it from a series they did at a church in Oklahoma called Life Church. Uh, and I heard somebody talking about this series, one of the, pa- not the pastor who preached it, but somebody else. And he said, you know, this 
sermon series, even though it's for Christians, I think it could have an incredible impact on the lives of non-Christians. As a church, Christians come together and we acknowledge, you know, maybe part of the reason that in our culture today, non-Christians look so unfavorably upon Christians is because we've not really been that careful at living out our faith. We've been more concerned with being people who live according to our culture, being rude, being prideful, being arrogant, being hypocritical, rather than being guided by Christ. And this could be a very powerful thing as we as a church gather around, look ourselves in the mirror and take an honest look and ask, where do we need to be more like Christ? What behaviors can Christ remove? What sins can he extract from our lives? And I think spiritual indifference is a huge one because if we are spiritually indifferent, we are not moving to be more like Jesus. We're not changing to be more like Christ. Therefore, we look just like everybody else. And the worst problem is with the things we're going to look at in the series, and especially spiritual indifference, is that oftentimes we are spiritually indifferent, we come because, but we don't realize it. We're spiritually indifferent, and we have no clue that, we're e- that something's even wrong because we just think this is okay. We're so, there's so much spiritual indifference existing in churches all across our country that we're just kind of, this is just how it is to live out faith. And there's, you know, I don't want to be one of those weirdo Christians who talks to people about Jesus. I don't want to be one of those weird people who has a shirt that says something scriptural. I don't want to be one of those weird people. Okay, and I understand, there are some weird Christians out there. Okay, I get that. Okay, there really are. Um, there's a comedian named Michael Jr. He calls them oversaved. He's like the person who, when, when they, br- you know, they bring your salads at the restaurant, by the time they're done praying for the meal, the lettuce is brown. He's like, they're a little oversaved. There's weird Christians out there. So I understand that, okay? But, but for a lot of us, we're just indifferent, and we don't even realize that something's wrong with that. And so the passage we're going to look at today is one that's meant to serve as an eye-opening wake-up call. It's meant to be a little harsh. It's meant to be a little shocking to get us out of the fact that we might not take this as seriously as we should. So we're going to be in a passage today in the book of Revelation, everybody's favorite book. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. If you want to grab a Bible, go ahead and get there. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see the words of Jesus speaking to seven different churches throughout Asia. They're actually all in modern-day Turkey. If you can find Turkey on a map, all of these churches are in modern-day Turkey. But he's speaking to these churches, the message of either praise, hey, you're doing some things right, or warning and condemnation. Here's some things you're doing wrong, things that should not exist in my family, my body, my community of faith. And the church we're going to be looking at is the church in a city named Laodicea. And uh, you can go to modern-day Turkey, and you can walk the ruins of a lot of these churches uh, in the first, that are mentioned in the first couple chapters of Revelation. It's really a, uh, it's one of those trips I'd like to take. I don't love the idea of maybe going to Turkey. That seems a little uh, out of my comfort zone, but I'd love to walk in these ancient ruins of these cities where these churches existed. So let's start in Revelation chapter 3, ver- or chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Now these are the w- this is Jesus speaking here, okay? Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Meaning, I see what your faith is producing. That's what works mean. I see how your faith is calling you to live and leading you to live. And, and honestly, he says, I don't see much out of it. Would that you were either hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so he's describing how their faith is driving them to live. And he says, your faith isn't 
really doing anything at all. It's nothing of significance. It's not leading you to be drastically different than the culture around you. It's not leading you to share Jesus with people. It's not leading you to serve the least of these and to reach out and serve your church family and, and to care for people. It's not leading you to be more loving and less prideful and arrogant. It's not doing anything in your life. I see, I look at you, and you're calling yourselves Christians, but you don't look like what I wanted my followers to be. Now, when Jesus uses that word lukewarm, and when he talks about hot and cold, uh, that's kind of like, uh, it's meant to be a little bit of an embarrassing jab at the church in Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was a city that was real rich. They'd gotten like, flattened by an earthquake at one point, and the whole city came crumbling down. But they, they were like a business center. Lots of things came through the town. They had loads of money, and so they rebuilt. And like anybody who's going to rebuild, with it, and you got an overabundance of income and finances, they went all out. This was a city that had absolutely anything that you could want. They, you could do anything you wanted to do in Laodicea. But they had one thing with, that they lacked, and this sounds really silly, but it, it's, it's important. They didn't have a real good place to get water. And like the, the place they could natural, normally get water, it, uh, people that drank it reported being nauseated by it. Um, um, I've, I've been in a few towns where you drank the water out of the tap, and you're like, oh, gosh, that is rough. You're like, did, did this just like come out of the toilet? Like, where'd you get this glass of water from? I've been in those towns. My wife used to live in one of those towns. And so... Um, <laughs> And you know it's true, uh, and so we've, 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 you've tasted that kind of stuff. It just made people kind of sick, and so what they did was there was a city on one side, Hierapolis, and a city on the other side, Colossae, which is where the, the book of Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. Um, Hierapolis had hot springs, which we, you ever heard of like hop going up, you know, in the mountains and sitting in a hot spring, and it, you know, it's relaxing, and some people report even to this day that hot springs have medicinal effects, and so people love the hot springs, and then Colossae had sources of nice, pure, cold water, and so what Laodicea did, since they had all this money, they built these um, aqueducts, Roman, ancient Roman aqueducts, that would pipe this water in, so to speak, to their city, but it was a long way, and so by the time the hot water and the cold water got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot or cold anymore, it was lukewarm. And it wasn't really good for bathing, it wasn't good for that medicinal purpose, it wasn't good for taking a soak, and it wasn't that great to drink. And so it was kind of this embarrassment to them that they had all this money, all these resources, they could do anything they want, but they couldn't get a good cup of water. That was an embarrassment to them. And Jesus says, your faith is like that. A lot of, a lot of movement, a lot of work, and not a lot to show for it. And he says, because of that, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And spit you out of my mouth. I don't know why... Um, they went with that particular translation because it's overly nice. It's way, way too nice. The uh, Greek literally says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Love that. I've preached this passage before, and I think I went a little too far in describing it, judging by your faces at the time. And I'd like to do that again. Because the thing about vomiting is that it's rarely voluntary. It is rarely a choice. Like, nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what, I think I'm going to throw up today. It's always, you know, you see something, you taste something gross, you smell something gross, you got a stomach bug that makes your tummy just like crinkle up, you know, and you can just feel it. It just happens. Vomiting is not something you do, it is something that happens to you. And so Jesus is saying, whatever you're doing, it's gross. I don't like it. It's turning my stomach. And you've been there. We've all felt that. That's why some of you were nervous about what I'm going to say next, because you're afraid you're going to relive it here in the church. Um, just so you know, you've got to clean it up with yourself, okay? That's how this works. 
Um, and please, that's going to start a chain reaction. You know how that works. But um, the thing that came to my mind immediately um, was when Abby was pregnant. With all three pregnancies, she has been so morning sick. It seemed to get a little bit better with each one, but she was still very morning sick. And it wasn't, uh, morning sickness isn't even a fair term. It was 24-7 sick all the time. Everything made her nauseous. Everything made her sick. But with our first uh, kid, James, when she was pregnant, you know, you don't really know all the ins and outs of how to manage it very well. And so it was pretty early on in the pregnancy, and she was very sick all the time. And one particular Friday night, we went to a New Berlin basketball game. And, you know, you do what you do at a ball game. You get hot dogs and nachos, and you eat, and you don't think anything about it. And everything's okay. We get in the car ride home, and she doesn't love car rides at that point, you know. And we get home, and she's like, okay, I guess I'll, I'm going to sit for a minute and relax. Well, at that point in time, we had a dog, little Shih Tzu named Buster. And Buster was a grumpy old man of a dog. He was getting up there. He had a lot of health problems, didn't have a lot of le life left in him, didn't have a lot of teeth left in him, you know. And so because of that, he didn't eat well, and so we started getting him the canned dog food. How many of you ever opened a can of moist, wet dog food? Yeah. I was going to ask if you remember the smell, but I think the groan tells us that you do, right? And so he was such a small dog, we couldn't use the whole can. You give him like one spoonful for a meal, and it's like, I don't want to throw the can away. So I put a saran wrap and rubber band and stick it in the fridge. And so then, next time to feed him, you pull it out. He, it was too hard and cold for this little dog with no teeth to crunch, so I'd put some in a bowl, and I'd warm it up in the microwave because, you know, we're all suckers for dogs. Why do we do that kind of stuff, right? And so then I'd take this warm dog food, and I'd put it in his bowl, and he'd go to town. So we get home from the game, having just feasted on nachos and hot dogs and soda, and I feed the dog, and I put this warm food down, and Abby walks by and catches that whiff that's filling our kitchen from the microwave to the, where the dog bowl was. And I can just tell from, like, the, you know, the turn that I knew what's going to happen, and she trots off and takes off for the bathroom. So I know what's happening. It's not our first rodeo at that point in the pregnancy. And so I do the good thing, and I was like, I'll go check on her and see how she's doing. And she, the way our house is set up, you go into our room, our bedroom, and then you walk to the very far wall, and there's a door that goes into the bathroom. And I, as soon as I walk into our bedroom, I see that she didn't make it all the way to the bathroom. I mean, she got to the bathroom, because I can hear that toilet echo from the, you know, I can hear all that noise. But I can see that when she started throwing up, she was not in the bathroom yet. And so it was running down the walls in our bedroom. Isn't this great? Yeah. This is like my favorite story of her. Of being, it, was, it was the one time she didn't really make it, right? And it, what's funny is, is it wasn't just running down the walls. It was kind of going in the direction of the door, so that she threw up on the run, you know. It, was, it hit it, and then it ran down. And it was on the walls. It was on the floor. It was on the bathroom door. It was all over the bathroom. It was just absolutely everywhere. And I felt bad because she couldn't help it, you know, and so I do the good husband thing, and I'm getting it all cleaned up, and just when I think I'm done cleaning it up, I go in, and I just shut the bathroom door just to see if there's anything. She had, when she was running, she had thrown up, and it went through the crack where the hinge is, and I look, and so I get everything done, and I shut the door, and it's on the bathroom wall behind the door, and I'm like, my goodness, what force this came out of her with, and that is like, that is a great bit of, a, a word picture, if you will of what happens when you throw up. It, you can't help it. It's forceful. It's your body saying, this shouldn't be here. I'm going to remove this from us so that you don't suffer any consequences from whatever gross thing it is you have encountered. And weirdly enough, Jesus says, that's how spiritual indifference makes me feel. That's how I feel. 
When I see a, a group of people that ha- claim my name, that claim my salvation, that claim to be the people that have tapped in to the power of the Holy Spirit that I have died to bring you, and that you walk through your normal everyday life going, meh. He said, that makes me sick. And again, as gross as it is, I, I understand how gross that is, but, I, but we've got to understand. We, I, I kind of had to take you to that, one of those moments so that you would understand how seriously. It's not just I spit you out like, ooh, this isn't gross. My kids, we're still like in that age where we're trying to get them to try new food. Food boomerangs all the time, you know, in the middle of that, you know, that, that, not, that happens when they don't like the taste of things, right? This is not that. This is that stomach turning, I can't control what's getting ready to happen to me. It's making me sick. It's so gross. My body is going to expel this. Jesus, that's the phrasing he uses for a lukewarm faith. Now, it's important to notice that he's not saying hot or cold isn't, I wish you were really on faith or I wish you had no faith at all. Both hot or cold, he just wants that extreme He wants us to have something where we understand this so incredibly matters to my life that I can't not let it influence how I live. I can't not let it drive me. I can't not let it determine my daily decisions. And then he even pinpoints out why the church in Laodicea is suffering from this sort of indifference. Verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says the indifference comes from essentially you thinking you've got it all figured out. You thinking your life doesn't need a single thing. When that is far from the truth for each and every one of us. He says the reality is that the church in Laodicea, those people are pitiable and poor and they're blind to all of it. They don't see how bad their situation is. And they think that they are fine. Now, like I said, Laodicea was a really, really rich place. Most of the people living there were doing okay. Their lives were pretty comfortable. Not a lot of bad stuff that they had to, you know, fight for and work for every day. Food was abundant. Um, They could get water. wasn't the greatest water, but they had what they needed. And I think that kind of is very similar to the lives that we live in the cause of our spiritual indifference. We live in a great country where we are incredibly blessed. And most of us, we got food on the table, food in the fridge. We don't, get a, we don't have to wonder if we're going to eat every day. We actually get to choose what we eat every day. That's not all that common when you look at the whole world, by the way. But we get that. We're so blessed. That through On most every day, we don't have to actually... Get down on our knees and pray, dear God, give me my daily bread, because we know it's going to be there. We don't have to get down and play, God, let me get through this day, because we know we're going to get through the day. And so in our blessed, comfortable American lifestyle, we can forget that we actually need Jesus every single day. We forget that we are constantly dependent on him for our spiritual well-being and for our earthly well-being. We forget that we need him. And I'll tell you how I know that that causes spiritual indifference. Because the second something turns sideways in your life, what do you do? Oh, dear God, I need something. Oh, dear Lord, somebody's sick. Heal them. I need this. The bunny's tight. Oh, God. The second something goes bad, boy, we are immediately reminded that we need God's help. But on a normal day when we don't feel needs, we don't feel like we're hurting for something, we don't pray, we don't crack open the Bible, we don't want to feel the need to tell people about Jesus, we don't feel like we need God's guidance because we're doing okay all on our own. And Jesus says, you are blind if you think you don't have needs. You are blind if you think you don't need more. And so part of the reason why we are spiritually indifferent 
is that we don't look to our Savior because we don't see our need for a Savior on a daily basis. We forget how deep our need is for Him. We've forgotten and we've gotten blind to the true spiritual reality that we live in. Because the truth that we learn from Scripture, from page 1 in Genesis to the end of Revelation, the reality is that each and every one of us, we all deserve eternal suffering in hell for the things that we have done. We've thought stuff, said stuff, done stuff that is wrong and disobedient to the way God has called us to live. And it says we deserve a punishment for that. But because Jesus did not love the thought of us spending eternity, forever, unending time in punishment for our sin, he stepped out of heaven into our world and he died and took the punishment for us. He was ridiculed. He endured pain and shame. He was spit on and stripped naked and beat. All of these things he endured to take away the punishment so that we could no longer be on the road to hell but on the path to heaven. He gave us the one and only chance at heaven that we will ever get. And we respond to his great sacrifice for us with meh, meh. Maybe I'll pray if, the day to, if there's you know, a little time in the day and I got enough energy, and I'm not going to fall asleep the second I close my eyes to pray. Maybe I'll read the Bible some morning if, you know, for some reason I wake up 10 minutes before my alarm goes off and I can't go back to sleep. Maybe I can do that then. We respond with, meh. And so many of us, we know in our heads, we know in our heads this stuff. You guys have all been coming here long enough. You've heard sermons. You've heard how we're called to follow Jesus and serve and, and be people who, who live out his word powerfully. We've, we've heard it, but it's almost as if we don't believe it. Like, we know it in here, but we don't live it in here. It's like it hasn't gotten into our hearts. And our faith has become either fire insurance, making sure we don't go to hell, or the thing that we kind of keep off to the side in case of emergencies when something goes bad and we grab it real quick and, oh, dear Lord, please help us, please help us, please help us, something's gone bad. But when everything's going fine, we forget. And the thing about spiritual indifference is that it doesn't just break Jesus' heart. It turns his stomach. I don't know if you've ever had something devastate you in such a shocking way that not only did your heart hurt, but you, like, threw up. Got physically, your, your stomach hurt so much from the anxiety and the pain of it all that you just couldn't help, but you threw up. I've seen people do that. I've done that before. And it's, it's, it's a whole different level of shock and pain. And, and this is what it's saying. Jesus, I want to vomit that out. I can't stand that. It breaks my heart, and it turns my stomach. Jesus would undo our lack of care on our investment that he died to bring us. Because you see, we were meant to be people of passion, who cared about this. We were meant to be people who understood what is at stake, the spiritual reality of hell, and that every human being deserves it, so that we never stop taking every opportunity to tell anyone who will listen about Christ and the salvation he offers. We were meant to be people who understand the mission of God and that it's our mission, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, that if there are people in this world who are hurting and Jesus cares about those people, we were meant to go help them. We forget that this is a, a world in danger and that we are the ones taking the message of hope. We, we were meant to be people who know and deeply, deeply know that we are loved by our Creator and that even though we're still sinners and even though we still m mess up, that no matter how far we walk away from God, nothing can separate us from His love for us. We were meant to be people who, who there's something different about us because our, our hearts and our, our fire, our, our hearts and our souls are on fire for Christ. And yet we live most days dry 
and passionless, not because Jesus has forgotten us, but because we have forgotten our need for him. In Revelation chapter 3, just a couple of verses later, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm here. I want in. I want to make your life better. I want to make your life different. I want to fill you with joy and purpose and meaning. Open the door. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in too and eat with him and he with me. Eating is like a sign of fellowship, of, of, con- of closeness. And so it's basically saying it's not too late to give up this attitude that makes Jesus want to vomit us out. It's not too late to live lives that actually matter. It's not too late to take this seriously and make it change who we are from the inside out. We don't have to live a life that means so little. We don't have to live a life that's so distracted by abundance that we miss out on purpose. But it requires us admitting, acknowledging, and leaning into our daily, ongoing need for Christ. It requires us to acknowledge his deep, great love for a really messed up people. And I really wish I could say, okay, now here's three things to do to stop being spiritually indifferent. Here, do these three things and it'll totally wipe it out. And I don't have that. That's just not how this works. Um, But the best advice I can give is that we need to be people who daily pray. And I don't mean like end of the day, Hail Mary prayer, God, thank you for the day, forgive me of my sins. See you tomorrow. Not, not, like a, not like a newscaster signing out at the end of a broadcast type of a prayer, but like a, a real moment where you sit down, shut the doors, put the world away for a minute, and you pray an earnest prayer, asking for God to change your heart, to draw you in to who he is, to acknowledge your need for him, and to fill you with passion and power that he meant for his believers to have. And so I got a prayer up here that I'm going to put on the screen. And we're going to pray that aloud together here in just a few moments. And I would encourage you for just this moment, forget about the room, forget about the people next to you, forget about the fact that, yes, someone's going to hear you talking out loud in church. We're all going to do it together, so guess what? No one's paying attention to you anyway. So forget about that. And just sit there and focus for a moment on your Creator, on your Savior. Because spiritual indifference is a, a serious thing that will not, it won't, Apparently I said something like, hey Siri. Um, it's spiritual indifference is a problem. That it, I'm not going to say it's going to kill your faith because it's almost as if your faith is already dying and dead. It's as if your faith is already on life support. And so we are asking God to come in and change our hearts and draw us closer to him so that we are people of passion and power as he meant his church to be. So let's close out by praying this prayer together. Heavenly Father, May your Holy Spirit open our eyes so that we see how much we need Jesus. Fill our hearts with gratitude and awe for the salvation you give us and and a passion to pursue you. Amen.